leading to destabilization for years to come. In the 1950s, the CIA was behind a coup attempt that overthrew the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh. Even now, we see the same tactics of regime change and covert coups attempts used today in countries like Venezuela, a country that has vast reserves of oil. In the most recent attempt, the U.S. has backed a covert coup in Bolivia to oust the democratically elected Evo Morales, the leader of the Movement Toward Socialism Party, or MAS. The coup was based on false claims of election fraud from the U.S.-backed Organization of American States, or the OAS. Just like other coups the U.S. has backed, this was about securing precious raw materials for American business interests. In Bolivia's case, that material is lithium. Bolivia holds some 9 million tons of lithium reserves. Despite the United States and right-wing Bolivian government's efforts, the workers and indigenous people of the country stood up and held general strikes in an effort to force the interim government to hold elections. So on Sunday, October 17th, the elections were held, and the Moss Party overwhelmingly defeated the interim right-wing government. This was not only a defeat for the right-wing opposition, but it was a rebuke of American imperialism. The question is, will this lead to other South American countries to stand up against American imperialism as well? On today's podcast, we'll discuss United States interventionism and what this may mean for socialist movements around the world. So we say, we always say the Black Panther Party, that they can do anything they want to do. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. Hey everyone, welcome to the R Wisconsin Revolution podcast, and today I am joined with Will Walter. How you doing today, Will? I'm always great when I'm talking to you, Andre. It's it's, it's important to to get this information out, and I and I love to be the one to to discuss it with you. Most definitely. So let's get right into it. Uh, as in the intro, we're going to be talking about Bolivia today. So the reason why I want to talk about this uh, particular topic is because. It really has a lot to do interventionism and American imperialism. And what we've seen in this situation is the working class of Bolivia standing up to uh, the neoliberal imperialist class of Bolivia and also a rebuke of the American imperialist system. So as I've said in my introduction, Bolivia has 9 million tons of lithium. So we can see why there's a serious interest for American business into uh, Bolivia and kind of steal their resources or have a uh, puppet government in there who will let us steal their resources. But um, what I, I want to focus on right here is how they completely failed in their mission, not because um, they didn't have the backing of, of, of the of a certain government, but because the people had rose up uh, in, in rebuke of this situation. And one of the funniest parts about this whole thing is how uh, how America was uh, really shit on um, by the, the ousted president, now ousted president, Evo Morales, because in 2018, he criticized America in front of Donald Trump's face, talking about their interventionism, interventionism and how they don't truly uh, believe in democracy because they back so many dictators and that they use democracy as a guise to overthrow uh, democratically elected governments. And I think this is going to have a domino effect for countries ready to stand up to American imperialism and also embolden workers and the, and the working class people 
to be in government because at this point um america is is becoming a declining state and they keep trying to use the same playbook but many people across the world are starting to catch on um so i think this is a really important story that we need to talk about and um i think it's also important for many people to hear this to understand that workers and socialist movements around the world are starting to get emboldened so I know you've heard about the story. Uh, Will, what, what was your take on the story and the election that recently happened on October 17th? Well, for one, it's uh, I love a lot of the memes coming out of it. You know, oh, America is such a failed state. Our CIA can't even organize a proper coup anymore. Like it's it's both funny and incredibly sad that Americans are able to sit around and laugh at the fact that we know our government has been directly intervening in the overthrowing of democratically elected governments throughout the rest of the world. Um, I was so incredibly happy to see the uh, Morales' party's victory, but it, if I recall correctly, they didn't win by, you know, it wasn't even really close. I, I believe they had like 52% of all votes when it was called. And this was amongst, you know, four, there's, there was four major parties running. So, um, I know the, uh, the U S backed fascist government already declared or, uh, accepted defeat the night of the election because it was such a massive landslide defeat that even with suppression efforts or other, you know, quote unquote cheating that might be done. There was no way that they'd be able to bring the election close. It's such a massive victory for for the people of Bolivia, but also for the mindset around the world that that this kind of change is possible. Though, let's not sit around and act like, oh, well, see, this is why you have to vote. It's just vote. This was a lot more than voting. The Bolivian people have spent the last year uh, organizing with hard strikes in the streets, um, you know, being brutalized by the uh, the fascist police departments and other right wing, we'll call them organized militia groups, I guess, that have been brutalizing these people and trying to scare and deter these people from uh, from demanding what is best for the country and what's best for for their actual people. So. It's not really the just, oh, well, see, Bolivia went out and voted. Why can't we vote in America to get it done? You need a lot more than that to actually implement change. You need to be doing the groundwork. You need to be protesting in the streets. You need to be – you the workers, the working class need to be uniting together to show the government that our strength, our numbers – we are the the force, the driving force of this economy. We are the laborers creating the production value. We want what's best for us, and we're sick of, of you taking advantage of us. So I think it's obviously a, a big win for for the potential success of voting, but it also is a is a perfect example of why voting by itself is not enough. Exactly. And um, just to kind of make more fun of the situation, um, you know, who really got uh, who really got the the brunt of the, the, the joke was Mr. Uh, Elon Musk. Exactly. Mr. Elon Musk. And if you guys haven't seen, he tweeted a while back around the time uh, Evo Morales got ousted. We can coup whoever we want. 
And basically saying they can steal all the resources. So there was a whole bunch of memes about about Elon Musk. And it was hilarious. But I, I really think this should really tell something to the American electorate that democracy isn't done when you vote. Because right now we have a situation where we have Joe Biden and then and, and Donald Trump. And a lot of people... I'm not sure exactly how many, but a lot of people are going to go to sleep if Joe Biden is elected. But that's not exactly how democracy works. The reason why the Bolivian uh, Mas Party has worked is because they're a movement. It's not they just voted Evo Morales or whoever they elect in and then they go back to sleep. No, they're a movement. They're constantly active in, in politics. They're active in uh, direct engagement. And here in, 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 in America, we, we vote and we go to sleep and we just let things go, go as it is. And I think that's a huge issue. And, um, and as, as a country, we have to understand that these movements are not, you know, top down movements. Um, they're, they're people, they're working class people in, in the case of Bolivia it's indigenous people. And I think that really has a testament of what we can do here in America, because right now, uh, we are, we're always looking for a progressive champion. We're always looking for the next person to run for, for president. But I think that will come naturally if we, we have a movement first. And right now we're so disconjointed and, and all over the place. So we haven't had a unified movement yet. And every time we try to run so far, um, it's, it's been crushed. But, um, another thing that's really interesting about this story is that I've, I've seen very little talk about this from Donald Trump and, you know, the right always uses Venezuela as the, the socialist boogeyman, but they don't really talk about, uh, Bolivia. Their poverty rate rate went from 60% to about 30%, which is quite amazing. And that's a lot to do because they nationalize a lot of their industries um, and that that's a testament of how um, some socialist aspects of of a policy, economic policy can work to help improve the lives of, of working people. And uh, you have this this scaremongering like, oh, when you socialize everything, there's going to be no freedom. Everybody's going to be eaten out of dirt. And that's not necessarily the case in Bolivia. It's actually reduced poverty heavily, heavily and, and has improved the standard of living in that country. So. Um, I really think uh, we need to take a huge look at what's going on in Bolivia and actually take some points from them and also see that, you know, just the tax socialism doesn't, you know, it's not an argument in itself. Yeah, um, I, I just want to verify this because I went back and checked. Uh, according with 95 percent of votes counted that night, uh Luis, I'm going to mispronounce it, but uh, Luis Arce had 52.4% of the votes. Uh, second was Carlos Mesa, 31.5%. Fernando Camacho at 14.1%. So it was a pretty pretty handed victory, uh, a pretty sound victory, I should say. They, they won quite handedly. And um, it, it really is a great example of when workers unite, they can accomplish whatever they want. And you were correct. A, a lot of, I, I say workers in general, just referring to what would be the American working class, um, because that's what I'm most well-versed in. But uh, there, this was a, a lot of indigenous people put a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort into this because 
they are protecting their country. They're protecting their family. They're protecting their homeland. And I think it is, I think you made a great point about hopefully waking the rest of the world up that change is possible if we get out on the streets and make sure that that you know the powers that be understand that we are the we we are the the reason the economy is able to function you rich and powerful people sitting at home selling off whatever goods it may be you know you can't sell lithium if you don't have people in the mines farming it it doesn't just magically come out of the ground yet they seem to think that because we're the ones making the high end decisions that we can keep 90 something percent of the profit without passing it on to the people doing the actual uh, laborious work. And that's just not the way that it needs to be if we want to truly eradicate poverty in society and truly make a more just and, and equitable world for everyone rather than just our already rich and powerful elite ruling class. Exactly. And I think one of the parts that we need to really understand is the ramifications of U U.S. interventionism, uh, because it's guys like uh, I said earlier as, you know, pro-democracy and creating more freedom. But really what it really is doing is just destabilizing the world and actually making the situation for us here at home worse because we spend so much money on the military. We spend so much money, you know, uh, destroying the climate because the worst polluter in the u.s is the u.s military uh, which is in turn going to create a, a a refugee crisis because at some point a lot of these middle eastern places are are literally going to have droughts because of climate change which is going to have a surge in refugees and in, in, in coming to the united states so the ramifications while even more than just sorry to cut you off andre but e even more than just drought you know you look at uh, in Iraq and Iran this year, temperatures were, were nearing 140 degrees Fahrenheit. That's starting to get to the boundaries of where human life can can survive. And the Middle East in, protect, in particular is kind of a, a, a giant desert. You know, it's, it's only going to be getting hotter and hotter and hotter there year after year after year. Where do these Western countries think people are going to go once their homeland is so unfathomably hot that you can't survive there? The Middle East is going to start to move north because that's where the temperature will be sustainable. Europe will start to get overrun. Russia will start to get overrun. And overrun's not the right term because every if they if you can't live in your country because it's too hot, you are obviously going to migrate somewhere where you can live. That's <laughs> like I, I can't believe that needs to be explained to any functioning adult that you would think, what are you going to tell these people? Just shut up and overheat to death and you and your family and your children are just going to die a miserable death? Whatever. Sorry, you shouldn't have chosen to – you shouldn't have been born there or whatever. Like no. It, with with America, where do – everybody's so worried about, oh, all the Central Americans and all the, all the Latinos and Latinas, they're all migrating into America and we – oh, we can't have that – like where do where do you think these people are going to go once those areas become too hot to survive? We're looking at at a refugee crisis that could be in the hundreds of millions of people, and some of with with the current overpopulation of a lot of um, a lot of these uh, larger cities. Where are we going to be able to house more people when they are actually? as Donald Trump likes to say, flooding into our country. 
what's going to happen when we actually have that crisis? It's it's remarkable that that they can sit and complain about the cost of a Green New Deal, not recognizing what the cost will be if we don't do anything about it. So continue what you were doing. I just wanted to. No, to make that no, that was quick. a great analysis and input of what I was thinking. And I think uh, American exceptionalism really has a lot to do with that mindset to think that we can do whatever we want. We can steal whatever we want. We can, you know, wage war on any country and have no ramifications because maybe we're so far away from the rest of the world. We kind of in our own little bubble around here, but and we're inherently superior because we were born in the land of the free, the home exactly, of the brave. Exactly. And it's it makes people feel a sense of safety because we're so far away and it's hard to get to us. But who's going to protect you from massive droughts? Who's going to protect you from uh, uninhabitable places to live? Who's going to protect you from a refugee crisis to the likes that we've never even seen since World War II? I mean, these people just do not think about future 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 ramifications of what our actions are they only think in short term uh gains and and i think that's extremely dangerous and i think that's why i really want to talk about this topic because we're creating this this massive situation in 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 south america we've seen how much we fear monger venezuela how much we want to destroy them but they they never ask why so many people are trying to refugee to America from from the southern south of the border, because, you know, it's clear because we're we're out overthrowing governments, cooing and creating destabilization where they can't live in these places anymore because it's too dangerous. And then when people try to come here because they're trying to have safety for their kids, they're like, oh, well, come here the, the legal way. Well, you didn't legally destroy their country so i mean you kind of need to give them the right of passage here and the legal way is so difficult as well that it it just boggles my mind to hear some of these uh right-wing correspondents who are saying things like well if you didn't want to have your children taken away from you you shouldn't have come here illegally and then at the same time they'll turn around and tell liberals well if you don't like it here then leave as if you know it's it's okay to just get up and leave America to go other countries to move to other countries because you know we're American so other countries would would bend at the knee to instantaneously get an, an American worker into their workforce but having somebody else come to America no 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 it's almost like they think that America's like the Garden of Eden or that it's like a that it's like a heaven on on earth where it's it's such a incredibly divine prosperous nation that. By simply being a member of it, you are entitled to anything else on the planet instantly. And by not being a member of it, you have to earn your way into this realm by, you know, being a, getting an Einstein grant because you're a, a genius or because you're married to a fat, disgusting realtor or whatever it might be. You know, you, you have to earn your way into the nation, but you've already earned your way out by virtue of being born here. The the disconnect is is simply fascinating. <laughs> I, I've never really thought of it in that terms, but that's probably the best way to describe it and how the conservatives who, who say, you know, just leave if you don't like it or if you want to criticize it, just leave. And it's just the most simplistic thinking I've ever heard. And I think if if they actually thought in a nuanced way, 
they would understand that's how they got here too because of immigration <laughs> and 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 if they can just take a step back and see that nobody in this country actually was actually naturally from this land except obviously the native yeah. except the natives who we exactly committed genocide obviously on, of the course. native americans and and funny enough i've literally um seen articles where the white people have yelled at native americans to go back to their country i'm like where are they gonna go fucking around the corner anyways that's beside the point but uh it's just it's just hilarious that people think that immigration in itself is bad considering this whole nation has come from the land of Europe for the most part. It's it's a, it's an incredible disconnect. It, it's, it goes back to the whole rules for thee, not for me. Like immigration is okay when in, when their ancestors were doing it a hundred years ago because they were fleeing a war in Europe. So that doesn't count. That's different. Okay, well the U.S. started a war in. South America. Why can't those people flee? Well, because that's different. It's, it's, it's because they're it's, brown. It's different. <laughs> you know, like it, they don't have any actual reasoning to state why it's different because they know that the actual their actual mindset for why it's different is because the Europeans were white, and but they can't say that because if they say that, they know that their argument will just be tossed aside as as ridiculous and, and racist which it it, it should, which it is so it is really really hard to break the um to break this this uh bubble that they live in and i really don't know how we are going to reprogram an entire chunk of the american population that have now spent the last 60 years being brainwashed by uh mainstream right wing well, I think, I think the unfortunate answer to your question is Americans are going to have to experience what other people are experiencing around the world. Now, how that experience is going to come about, I'm mean, not exactly sure, but we, like I said, we live in a country where there's American exceptionalism. We think every we can do whatever we want with no ramifications. And I think Americans, for the most part, need to have some type of program where we experience life as a result of American wars or, or, you know, the ramification of American wars, because until somebody in this country experiences it or, 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 or finds a way to get in touch with that, those situations, I honestly do not think people are going to care because our media doesn't cover war anymore. I mean, they don't even talk about it. I think I just seen an article saying the Washington Post uh, is getting rid of their war department section, which is baffling to me, considering we've been at war for 20 years <laughs> and it, it just right. doesn't make sense. But I think Americans are going to have to get into the shoes of the people who were, were causing suffering upon. Until then, I don't think anybody's going to really wake up. Of course, like some of us are, have woken up to it, but our voices are so minority that it doesn't even make a dent into uh, the American electorate. So that's what I think needs to happen. I, I agree with you conceptually, Andre, but think of it this way. Um, when if Americans were to face this kind of situation where we could uh, where we would all have to deal with life as American uh, imperialism has forced other nations to deal with it, who would be the ones really suffering? 
I think we could say that we're kind of experiencing something like that right now with this whole uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Usually, America is one of the better equipped countries at handling situations like this. But obviously, with, with the commander and clown who completely dismantled our pandemic playbook and has disregarded science at, at every turn and has ignored the successful ways that other first world nations have managed to deflect some of the, the damage. So America as a country is suffering in ways that we generally don't have to suffer. That is generally reserved for uh, countries with less financial ability and less infrastructure in place. Um, but even with the suffering of the American people through this pandemic, who is really suffering the most? It's not the rich and powerful. It's not the people with money. It's not the ones who, who are using their power to cause damage to other countries in the world. It's the poor, impoverished people of America. It's the minority communities. It's the families of uh, essential workers that are going out and getting sick and then not having a hospital bed ready for them because the hospitals are overflowing. While Donald Trump and Chris Christie are taken into social, you know, taken to a government run hospital with government paid doctors, 100% socialized medicine for them, rugged individualism for everything else. They get taken care of within a week. So they don't learn any lessons because why would they? It was easy peasy for them. But at the same time, uh, you know, the, the black family who's, uh, who live in maybe one house because they can't afford to have uh, multiple residencies. So it's, you know, the older grandparents living with their children, living with their children. Well, the children now who are 17, 18, 19, 20 have to go work because somebody has to make money. They're essential workers working, you know, some minimum wage job that Republicans scoff at and deem not worthy despite labeling them essential because we know that as a society without them, we would completely fail. So they go out, they catch COVID, they come home, no matter how safe they are, they're living in the same home as their elderly grandparents who then get sick. The elderly grandparents aren't given a hotel room or a hotel room, Jesus. Uh, I'm picturing the, the Trump room that he got at Walter Reed, which basically reminded me of one of the most beautiful hotels in the world. And then I compare it to what a hospital room for an average American would look like. And then I take it a step further and think about the people who weren't even granted that average hospital room. And it just makes me so angry. So now the, the grandparents are told, well, just go home. And if it gets any worse, whatever, then you can maybe come back. Well, they can't afford to come back now. So they just die at home. These are the people who are suffering, who understand America is broken, and then they have, they're forced to suffer even more because the rich and powerful who are causing this destruction never have to account for their sins because they have the money to avoid it. It's, it's incredibly broken that they are the ones who, you know, from a, from a, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, if you're looking for an eye for an eye perspective, you know, they should have to suffer in the same way they made others suffer. Um, they won't ever have to face that repercussion because they have money. They can just push it off onto the lower Americans who then will suffer just like they always well, do. Well, to kind otherwise. of explain what I mean by Americans would have to experience what people are going through in other nations. I don't mean literal um, because, no, I wouldn't advocate that our country should be bombed or, or, or anything like that. But I mean, in a, in a sense of, of being 
exposed to what's going on. For example, the reason why the Vietnam anti-protests were so huge is because the media actually covered it. They showed the grim, grim, gruesome pictures of what the war was causing on, on people in, um, on people in, in foreign countries. For example, when that, um, when that POW was shot in the head, that, that completely ended the war as far as support because they were like, well, this is war crimes. People are getting killed for no reason when you can just take this person as prisoner. And that's what I mean as far as they need to experience it, because when you're exposed to it, you're more likely to react to it. And right now we don't have a media that actually exposes the U.S. electorate to what's actually going on in the world. And yes, I do agree with you that uh, when situations like this happen, the poorest among us are hurt the worst. That's why you see with sanctions, they don't actually hurt the people in power. They actually hurt the poorest in those countries. So the sanctions don't actually hurt the intended audience. It actually hurts the unintended audience. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, if we can have more media coverage of it, um, more people are likely to uh, be more sympathetic to the people in those country countries. But we know our media sucks and that they don't, they don't cover yeah, it. We need- independent media to do this because the mainstream American media that's just in the pocket of the neoliberal corporatists will never show this because they're benefiting from exactly. it. You know? And that's the issue. Um, and we, we've talked about this before about how our media is owned by only six huge corporations. And that's why we don't really get the news that we actually want because it's all corporate backed and it's all about self-interest. And Honestly, we just need to break up the media companies uh, because right now they're they're completely not serving their purpose of informing the people of the the government's wrongdoings, and that's not what they're doing. They're actually backing the government's wrongdoings, and I think uh, Jimmy Dore said uh, they're not journalists anymore; they're stenographers for the people in power. And I think that's a great description of what they are because. I rarely see, um, except for, I want to say something about this in a second, but I rarely see actual journalists holding politicians' feet to the fire in the way that actually will grant some backlash from the electorate. It's mostly, oh, thank you for coming on, Senator or or or, or uh, Representative, and, and, and I'm so glad you're running and doing what you're doing. Like they're they're not holding them to power. Toss them a few softballs and exactly, call it a day. Exactly. Except for Donald Trump, who who likes to get up and walk away when he's asked, "What are you going to do for your next four years if reelected?" Because apparently that's too difficult a question for him. But you, you're right. Yeah. Exactly. And if you guys haven't heard it, there was a New Zealand reporter who was interviewing a politician in New Zealand who had lost in a landslide election. And I really believe this is how you should hold elected officials accountable, but it's just not happening here in, in America because our media is so, you know, corporatized and, and, and so hell bent on, on access to politicians that they don't, they're afraid to hold politicians um, feet to the fire. But here, here's the sound clip of it and check it out. Do you want to have another crack at answering that? Because I just asked you if you have any regrets. You've just been um, part of a political movement which has been peddling misinformation during the election campaign. Do you have any regrets? You know exactly what you were doing. You were whipping up fear and hysteria among vulnerable communities. Not at all. If you go and look at the mortality rate of COVID-19 compared to other um, flu epidemics... I'm going to stop. No, I'm not, I don't, so, don't so, want to so, hear, so, I don't so, hear any, of, totally, I don't hear any just, of that rubbish. You can't what are you, just give what are, me that and not allow me to answer. Well, if you're going to come on, if you're going to come 
come on the show and say things which are just factually incorrect. I can do that, actually. This might be the last time that you're on air, probably the last time that we'll invite you on. Are there any apologies that you want to issue to anyone? But overall, I think what takeaways we have to take from the Bolivian uh, election victory as far as the Mas Party is that we need to stand up as workers and create a movement to shift the political leanings of this country because right now uh, we have two parties that are completely corrupt and, uh, and and don't listen to the workers of this of this country because they have no incentives incentives to but if we create a, a grassroots uh, grassroots movement uh, I really think we can have some change in this country similar to what Bolivia is going through and actually have a workers party or e either a workers or, or a workers candidate who may run for the ticket. But much like Bolivia, that is not going to happen overnight, eh? And it's not going to happen just by sitting around and wishing that people will start voting. You have, we're going to all have to, we all have a role to play. We're going to have to be in the streets. We're going to have to be loud. We're going to have to be calling our representatives, pushing our representatives. Getting rid of Donald Trump is, is really only the beginning. After that is when the real work begins. And if we are unable to, you know, like you mentioned earlier, if the entire uh, pack of, of the liberal, successful liberals who just want to be able to go back to having their brunch and not worrying about the plight of, of the American worker just fall back asleep for the next four years. We're just preparing ourselves for an even worse Donald Trump fascist type in 2024. So we need to be loud. We need to be passionate. We need to be aggressive. We need to be American and we need to be in the streets demanding what's best for our fellow Americans rather than our celebrity elite. Exactly. And to quote Michael Moore, he said, democracy is not a spectator sport. It's a participatory event. If we don't participate in it, it ceases to be a democracy, which is so true. So, yeah, man, we got to go ahead and create this movement and get everything going so we can have a true workers party. And uh, I'm really looking forward to keeping on expanding on on, on the, the, the concept of a workers movement uh, similar to what we had uh, in the 1930s, which pushed the Democratic uh, Party left and which is why Roosevelt uh, was a left wing candidate. So that's what we're going to have to do. And uh, thank you guys for joining the Art Wisconsin. Revolution. If you're interested in helping out, contact our Wisconsin Revolution, contact the Movement for a People's Party. There's plenty of options out there. A lot of people that are doing great grassroots organizing. We'd love to have you have have you help out everybody's got a skill set that has value everybody needs to make their voices heard oh yeah that's what we got to do and if you guys are interested in joining our wisconsin revolution or movement for people's party i will link uh their websites below in the description so uh thank you guys for joining the our wisconsin revolution podcast and thanks for joining me will and uh you guys have a great day have a great night everybody take care stay safe and healthy so we say we always say the black Panther party that they can do anything I'm a little